This is The Kingdom at Hand from Hosanna Free Lutheran Church in St. James, Minnesota, and I am Pastor Joe Faldet. We have worship at 9.30 a.m. during the summertime. We can be found online at hosannafreelutheran.com and in podcast format on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app as The Kingdom at Hand. Our sermon today, well, that's interesting. (laughs) We'll skip that first one. We'll go right to the second slide then. Um, It was right up on the screen on the computer, wasn't it, Nathaniel? Whatever. All right, computers. Um, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. We're going to be looking at Christian unity. If you'd please rise out of honor of God's word. Uh, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I think my favorite definition of technology is something that doesn't work quite right yet. Because a pencil is not technology. And you know, they always work until they run out. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. That's found on page 1243 in your Black Pew Bible. And I read in Jesus' name, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let us pray. Father, as we come to study your word, I ask that you would bless and that you would work, Lord, and that you would guide us so that we might know what it means and how we are to apply it. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what is unity? What does it mean? What does this matter? Well, it, it actually is. Paul starts out our discussion about unity. He starts out not talking about doctrines right here, but he again brings up this fact that he's a prisoner. Which is interesting. Or at least I think this is interesting. Maybe you guys don't, but if you don't, I'm sorry. Because it is interesting. Why does Paul bring up again the fact that he is a prisoner for the Lord? That because of his Christianity, he's in jail. Paul is presenting his walk with Jesus as being the central thing in his life. That there is nothing more important than his walk with Christ. Than his work for Christ. He says, this is why I'm a prisoner. I am a prisoner for the Lord. And so Jesus is so important to me that I'm willing to give up potentially my family, that I'm willing to give up my freedom, that I'm willing to give up good food, that it, because, you know, this is a Roman prison. They probably weren't serving five-star meals. You know, I'm willing to give up ease. I'm willing to give up comfort. I'm willing to give up everything to the end that Paul was willing to give up his life. And he says, Christ is my center. And since Christ is my center... I'm going to be telling you these things, and it is, Paul is using his prison, his prison time, 
call that, I almost called it prison ship, but that's not really a word. Um, his prison time as an example to the people that he is an example to be following. Christian unity starts with Christ being at the center. And that's why Paul says, as a prisoner in the Lord, as someone who has Christ as the center of his life, you also ought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the interesting part about this word manner, walk in a manner worthy. What's his emphasis here? It's in our lifestyle, right? It's not confess a creed that is worthy. Belong to a body that is worthy. He's saying, this is how you're supposed to be living your life. You're supposed to be living your life in a manner that's worthy. There were, there's a field of philosophy called existentialism. Any of you ever heard of existentialism? A couple of you? Good. Okay, then I'm not I'm just alone in this. But the focus of existentialism was that what you say doesn't really mean anything. It's what you do that means something. And, you know, these philosophers, they thought they were really clever because they invented that. And then you read the Bible and it's already there. Um, they should have read their Bible more. But that was one of the foundations of this existentialism, and this is one of the foundations of Christianity. If I say something, and then I don't live it out, what am I revealing to the world? That what I say to be true really isn't true. I was speaking with a guy when I first came to St. James here. He said, well, the problem is people don't necessarily act out what they believe. And I said, no, that's not true at all. We always act out our beliefs. Always. If you want to know what you believe, look at your actions. That will teach you what you believe. Don't say, well, I believe this, but I'm acting this way. No. That means I don't really believe this. I really believe this, but I'm not humble enough to admit it. How are your actions? Walk in a manner Worthy of the calling that you have been called. Look at your actions. Are your actions following behind what God would have you do? And if they're not, that means there's something wrong in your belief system. It's not about just changing your actions then. It's about changing what you believe. If, if, every, if every time I got mad at someone, I started swearing at them, what would that reveal to you about my belief system? It would reveal that somewhere along the line, I think that swearing is actually the way for me to get my way. Well, the Apostle Paul says that no um, obscene words are supposed to come out of our mouths. Oh, that means that me swearing at this person is actually sin. And therefore I need to confess it as sin instead of confessing it or living it out as a legitimate lifestyle. It's sin. Because obscene words are coming out of my mouth. And that's how we deal with our belief system. So we look at our manner of living. We compare that with Scripture. When they contradict, we say, my manner of living is wrong. And then I come to God and I confess that and I repent of it. Okay, God, I can't be doing this anymore. I guess I can't be swearing every time I get mad at people. And believe it or not, when I was in high school, I actually had a fairly dirty mouth. 
because I played football and all my friends had, you know, were swearers. And so, you know, I wanted to be cool too. So I started dropping the F-bomb and then I realized I just sound like them. (laughs) That's not cool. But whatever. Walk in a manner. Look at your lifestyle. Is it worthy of the calling to which you've been called? What is your calling? If you're a Christian, that means you are a son of God or a daughter of God. Is this how God would act? Is this what God would have you do? Is this how God would have you represent him into this world? Because this is what you are. If you claim to be a Christian, you are now a representative of God. Congratulations. That's your calling. That's your job. That's your vocation. That's your responsibility. And that is indeed your privilege. This is our calling. Are we living in that sort of manner? Are we living in a manner that says, you know what, this is how God would interact with you. Now that's, that's brutal. You know what, as I think about this, it's like, you should t- stop calling, telling people I'm a Christian. Because I'll, I'll be honest, there are times when I don't act like a Christian. Not, I don't say that proudly, I say that shamefully. So in these times when I'm not acting like a Christian, then I actually have to step up and go even further and say, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry that I did that. I haven't properly represented God. I've, I've sinned against him, and I've sinned against you by misrepresenting God to you, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Because that's me starting to act like a Christian again. Because that's what a Christian does. A Christian isn't perfect. A Christian is one that acknowledges their sin and confesses and repents, right? I hope. Because if a Christian is only he who is perfect, well, pff, we might as well go home. Because I know most of you. You might as well go home too. So this is, this is our Christianity, and this is the beginning of our unity. The beginning of our unity is understanding our calling. What is our calling in this world? This is to represent God. That's primary. To have that be the center of our life. So important as Paul's was. He was willing to go to jail for it. Willing to be mocked and scorned and beaten stoned, shipwrecked. Paul went through the ringer. And he said, you know what? Jesus is so worthy. And he is so worthy to me that I want him to be the center of your life too. So what is this manner? Then Paul starts going through this manner. So let's, let's like expand this out a little bit. The manner, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. First off, with all humility and gentleness. Humility is tough. You know why? Because at the center of pride is I. It's this folk, pride is this focus on self, this expansion of myself, this idea that I am I am so great. Humility is me being willing to say. You know, I'm wrong. Not just I have been wrong. You know, that the joke that I've said a couple times. So I'm not going to say it again. Not just that I have been wrong. But rather, I have a tendency to err. That's supposedly what Luther said when he was at the Diet of Worms, right? 
I am man and I tend to err. You know, it's like, that's, that's a reference of humility. But it's not just speaking this forth, it's actually living this out. Humility is something that is deeply grounded in ourself. So when, when we're interacting with other people, and they have the audacity to be wrong, how do we interact with them? Are we humble towards them, understanding that it, indeed it might actually be us that are wrong? Or that we too have been wrong? That's why Paul puts together humility and gentleness here. Because only the humble person really has the ability to be gentle. Well, gentleness is a little bit different than compassion. Because gentleness, like compassion means that you feel bad for someone. Gentleness is the way by which you interact with that person. And so if I'm going to be correcting someone, I, I'm sorry, but you're wrong in this situation. Here is why. If I'm humble here, I'm not going to say, hey, get it together. You know, I've got it together, therefore you should have it together, right? Because I am the standard by which this world is measured. Nobody would actually say that because they're smarter than that. But nevertheless, that's how we act. When someone messes up and we're harsh and mean and cruel towards them, what are we saying? I know right, you know wrong, and you are wrong because you're not as right as I am. A lack of gentleness demonstrates a lack of humility. A lack of humility demonstrates that we don't really know how we got to where we are. Because the only reason that we are where we are is because of the grace of God. If it's by God's grace, then that means, A, it's not by us, and B, that anybody, anybody could be where we're at. Because it's God who works it out, and not we ourselves. Humility and gentleness. Patience. With patience, bearing with one another in love. How many of you are really patient people? JD. Thanks, JD. At least there's one person. (laughs) Patience is tough. Why is patience so hard? I don't think patience is any harder nowadays than it ever has been all throughout the history of the world. Because... As many times as scripture talks about patience, you know, they didn't have the technological advancements that we have. Because, you know, how many of you remember the first time you interacted with a computer? Anybody here? How long did that thing take to start up? Like, our first computer at school, remember those green Macs? The Macs with the green um, Oregon Trail game on them? Because <laughs> that was the most important thing. What's the game? I don't remember anything else about them, actually. Yeah, no, I don't. Um, they were green and black. And we'd get to class, and we'd start them up, and you hear that hum. And about five minutes later, we could start playing. And my computer now, it's like, it takes me 30 seconds, and I'm standing there. Come on! Hurry up! It's not the computer. It's me. Because I'm actually not trusting God with my time. Patience is a willingness to trust God in time. Can I be patient with someone who is struggling? Well, only if I trust that God's working his timing in them. Just as God has worked his timing in me. 
And you know, it's taken me a long time to get as perfect as I am. And I'll be able to say the same thing next year. And when I'm 85. Because I'm, I'm not perfect and God is still perfecting me. And that's working over long periods of time. And God does little things over long periods of time. And so we're supposed to interact with people in patience. Understanding that it takes time for people to change. At least it takes time for me to change. Maybe, maybe not Tim. He might change really fast. But it takes time for me. And so as I interact with someone, as, as you interact with someone who is not quite as perfect as you are, you can say, okay, God, it's taking me this long to get to where I am. It'll probably take less time for this person to get to that same spot. So I'm willing to wait and encourage, bearing with one another in love. Because believe it or not, sometimes people are annoying. We bear with them in love. Do you bear with something that's enjoyable? Like, I really bear it all the way through that Dairy Queen blizzard. Like, man, that was (laughs) long-suffering. I bear not eating it faster. We don't bear with things that are good. We bear with things that are difficult. Bearing with one another in love. This is the manner to which we've been called because God does the same to us. When someone messes up, how do we interact with them? You know what? You've messed up. You're done. We bear with them in love. Wanting the best for them. Looking to the long-term best for them. We don't bear with one another in niceness. Because that just brings regret. Well, not just regret, but resentment. You know, if you're nice to someone long enough and they keep using you, how do you feel in that situation? That person comes by and you're like, I don't want to see them anymore. Why? Well, you've just been nice to them. You haven't been loving them. You haven't been encouraging them to change. I learned something really fascinating. That if I actually love someone enough to correct them, if they're a user, they won't keep coming back. Because they don't want me to correct them. They don't want me to actually love them. They want me to keep them in whatever addiction they're in. Whether that be their pride or whether that be drugs. But if I actually get after this person, I say, you know what, what they're doing isn't right. And because I love you, I'm going to tell you. But I'm not going to kick you out of my life. I'm just going to tell you and encourage you to become right. Finally, they're going to say, you know, I don't like being corrected. I'm going to quit coming. And I don't have as many users in my life anymore. Because I loved them. And I wanted them to change. I didn't do this just so they leave me alone. I did this because I wanted them to change. Because is it good for anybody to be stuck in that sort of lifestyle? damaging all the way through so not only are we to be loving others but we are to be actually eagerly pursuing this bond of peace amongst the brethren we're to pursue that peace that uniting back together eagerly you know not just as a as a symptom of people who are alike get along but even people who are not alike that we are to pursue peace with these people Because peace brings us unity. And it brings this bond of fellowship between us. And if you've ever gone through a difficult time with someone, you will have have a bond with that person. It will build that up. If you've gone from a state of poor relationship to a state of good relationship with someone, that'll bring unity there that 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 a lack of fighting 
never brings. And peace isn't a lack of fighting. If you're at peace with someone, that doesn't mean you never disagree with them. If you're at peace with someone, that doesn't mean you never butt heads. If you're at peace with someone, that means that you are both actively seeking that which is best for each other. You're both seeking a central point. Whether that central point be truth, whether that central point, like whatever word you would use to describe it, it's the same thing. You know, if you're seeking truth, you're seeking that which is best for each other, seeking godliness and lifestyle, seeking God, you know, the kingdom of God for the church, however you'd want to say that. If you're both seeking that end, that's a place of peace. And if one isn't seeking that end, well, sadly then there's disunity because they don't fall into the body. What is unity then? Is unity administrative oneness? Since we are all in the same church, we are all one, right? No. That's not what Paul talks about here. When Paul talks, and Bruce texted me this, and I, I was actually thinking about it. One of the reasons that, well, one of the reasons that denominations merge and come under the same hierarchy especially back in the 50s when all of these denominations were merging into the ALC because that's when the Free Lutheran Church merged into the AFLC or it's in the ALC <sighs> all of these acronyms terrible but the German Lutheran Church the Iowa Ohio Synod merged at that point I'm forgetting all of them I have a book that talks about it it's really tedious and awfully boring I had to read it for seminary. So if you guys want good sleeping material, that one is awesome for putting you to bed. Um, but as these, all of these denominations merged together, they merged together because they thought if we had one hierarchy, we are now one. We are presenting a united front towards the world. And you know what has happened? It has not worked. Because... And their excuse was, well, Jesus prayed in John 17. And if any of you are doing that uh, praying for your spouse challenge, this is one of the ones written for today. Uh, in John 17, Jesus prayed, may they be one as we are one. And so Jesus is talking to God about this. And the argument that was used at that point in time was, would we deny Jesus' prayer? Jesus prayed for this, shouldn't be important for us? The reality is, do you think that God didn't answer Jesus' prayer? It's up for us to answer Jesus' prayer? It's not up to us. Here is true unity. Unity is a statement of reality. There is one body and one spirit. There is. There's only one. If you're a Christian, you belong to that body. That doesn't mean a denominational body. That doesn't mean uh, a body of creed. You know, that doesn't mean that you have to be a Lutheran in order to be a Christian. It doesn't mean you have to be a Baptist in order to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you have to be a Catholic in order to be a Christian. It means you need to belong to this one body. All of those denominations, they are supposed to be representational pieces of that one body. But we're all called to be, if you're in Christ, you are in that one body. Period. If you are in Christ, you partake of that one spirit. Period. If you partake of a different spirit, you are not in Christ. It's about Christ. He is the center. It's a statement of reality. There is one body. 
Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And again, it's Jesus. Jesus is our hope. Salvation through Jesus alone. That's our hope. That's the hope that we have here. Eternal salvation through the shed blood of Christ. Attained through faith. Wow. That is wild. And you know what? Every solid Christian that I've ever met believes that. Not just confesses that. They believe it. It has gripped them. They live it out. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Okay, experiential side. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What does all that mean? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. A baptism is a physical experience. Baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you have been brought into a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to then have one faith? That means that all who belong to this body are all trusting Christ. Are all relying on what He has done. One Lord. So there's a difference between trusting Jesus and Jesus being Lord. Because I can trust Jesus as my Savior, and I trusting Jesus as my Lord? If Jesus is your Lord, that means that He is that Son in the center of your solar system that everything else revolves around. That He is the center of your life. That you live your life according to Him. That you pursue Him. And this is why we first need to understand forgiveness because and understand existentialism, understand what our manner of walking really means. Because if Jesus is my Lord, I can look at my life and I can say, there was something that I did that probably wasn't under the Lordship of Jesus. Like yesterday, I, I suppose, my plan had been to spend about two hours in my shop trying to get some stuff ready for the house. Um, I'm not going to go into all of them. But that was my plan. I ended up spending about four and a half hours there. And Afterwards, I was like, you know what? That wasn't good because I had all these other things I needed to get done. And I didn't do them. And they were actually of higher importance. And by the time my shop time ended, it was more so me just doing what I wanted to do instead of saying, okay, God, what do I need to do? What, what tasks have you given me? And I look at that, it's like, that wasn't the Lordship of Christ. That was Joe just satisfying his desire to be in the shop. And so, what does it mean for Jesus to be our Lord? That it would be a group of people that seek to do the Lord's will instead of seeking to do their own will. Like, wouldn't that change the church? If we're all a group of people that are getting together specifically to learn how to better do the Lord's will instead of how to better fulfill ourselves, satisfy our wants and desires, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the difficulty, well, that we would, that we would be worshiping one God, and, and that comes out of the, this lordship idea. The, the difficulty of all of this is the application of it. Because if, so why do, okay, Sorry back up a little bit. Why do we have denominations? 
Why do they exist? Have you ever thought about that? People say, well, it's because of disunity. It's like, no, it's a symptom of disunity. But why do we have denominations? Because it's shorthand. If I walk up to someone, I tell them, you know what, I'm a Lutheran. They're going to say, okay, that means you believe this, 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 and this. You know, and so as we start getting into this, though, it breaks down. Because just because someone's a member of a Lutheran church, does that mean they're really a Lutheran? No. When someone claims to be a Christian, does that really mean they're a Christian? No. How do we know who's a fellow Christian? If there is only one body, but there's all these different denominations, but there's all these different doctrines, how do we discern that? It's about Jesus. But how do you know if someone's following Jesus? You have to actually talk to that person. Interact with that person. Since now we can't trust just because someone says they're Christian. We actually have to look at their life and look at what they say. And interact with the person. I know that's hard for some of us. And I put myself into that category. Because I am by nature antisocial. Believe it or not. I'm working on overcoming that. But you know, whatever. To actually interact with someone, listen to what they say, look at how they live. Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruits. How do I know who's a proper pastor to follow, to listen to? How do I know? Does it line up with scripture? What are the fruits of his sermons? What are the fruits of the messages? I've talked about this before. I, I, there's a church in the cities that I had a friend who started going to that. And when she, before she started going to that church... She loved people. She cared about the lost. She was kind and she was gracious. And then she started coming to this church. And right away it seemed like things were going better because she was really starting to get into her Bible. And then after she started going there for about a year and a half, she's like, I don't know if I should be sharing my faith with this person because I don't know if they're predestined to heaven or not. It's like, what? What happened to this loving, faith-sharing, generous girl that I knew, now you're holding back the gospel from people because you don't know if they're predestined? Well, they're never going to be saved if you don't share them the gospel. She's like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Or I shared with them once, but you know they're, they're not saved, so I guess they're not going to be going to heaven. And so I guess they're not predestined. What was the fruit of that doctrine? Were people deeper in their faith? Did they love Jesus more? Did they love their fellow neighbor more? No. It all broke down. So if someone's teaching something and then the fruit of that is bad, it's a good sign it's bad teaching. So how do you find good teachers that are looking to Christ? Look at their fruits of the teaching. Are we growing in grace? Are we growing in faith? Are we growing in love? If not, you know, then maybe it's time, well, then... It's possible it's time for a different pastor. And I say that as a pastor. And so if this is what's going on, then Hosanna needs to fire me. And I mean that. I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean that. Or at least needs to have a long talk with me. And then if I don't listen, needs to fire me. As individuals, are we walking with Jesus? Look at their lives. Look at their words. Listen to them. Interact with them. Then you'll know. How do they interact when things are hard? You know, I remember, sorry to keep picking on you today, Bruce, but when, when Rebecca was sick, 
I don't remember that. That was before I came here. But one of the things that Bruce said is your greatest witness isn't going to be when everything's going well. It's going to be when everything's going poorly, when everything's going bad. That's your opportunity for greatest witness. So when everything falls apart around you, when this person, how are they acting in that situation? Watch that. Watch them. Don't judge them harshly. Judge them in the way that Paul talks to us about here. With patience and humility, with gentleness. Bearing with them in love. You'll learn who they are. You'll understand them and know them. Because you can't believe that someone's a Christian just because they say they're a Christian. Who are they as an individual? That's what matters. Christian unity is all about Christians being united. Not just about churches, denominations, bodies, but about Christians. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would guide us in this doctrine of unity. Lord, that we would walk in grace and in humility. Lord, loving you and loving our neighbor. Lord, seeking that those who are around us might know you better. Lord, may we live that out as Paul lived it out. May your name be glorified in everything we do, Father. May you be revealed in everything we do, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn.